Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. If you are a student of any musical theater program worth its salt, then there is no way you received your degree without singing one of the many brilliant songs that sprung from the mind of today's guest. And there are so many songs to choose from, like Just a Housewife and The Mason from Working, The Kid Inside, one of my favorites from Is There Life After High School, Uh, What You Call a Dream from Diamonds, At the Fountain and One Track Mind from Sweet Smell of Success, and of course, the amazing song Flight. This year, he has also published a fantastic book entitled The Reason to Sing, A Guide to Acting While Singing. And if you are listening to this and you run a musical theater program or teach a musical theater program, you must make this book mandatory reading for all of your students. It is groundbreaking and life-changing. So please, please, please do that. So to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Wally Harper, Marvin Hamlish, Craig Lucas, Nora Ephron, John Guare, John Lithgow, and so many more, here is the wonderful songwriter, Craig Carnelia. Craig, how are you today? I'm just great, fellas. Thank you. And you're calling us from Missouri, is that correct? I'm in Springfield, Missouri. My wife and I bought a house here about a year and a half ago. Uh, Lisa, Lisa Brescia, is on the um, is on the faculty of Missouri State teaching acting, and she's also still very actively uh, uh, working as in her in her first profession, which is being an actor. And a brilliant performer. And Kevin, you yeah. got to collaborate with her, right? Yeah, well, I do those concerts at Abingdon Theater, as we mentioned in past episodes. And Lisa was one of our performers when we honored Donna Murphy. She sang, I think, a, a, a Cantor Nebs, I mean, a Mopey and Shire song. And just absolutely incredible. Just amazing performer, as you know, full well. <laughs> I do. And, and Craig, before we got on the air, you were saying that being down there, you feel like it's one of the most productive periods for you in terms of being a writer. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I, I, for the past three decades, I've had two professions. I've been an acting teacher to musical theater actors, teaching classes uh, mostly in New York, but also around the country uh, at universities. But And then I've been a writer. And there are times when the two fields have been extremely active at the same time. But I um, stopped teaching my New York classes in 2017. And... Uh, Upon moving here, I am simply writing full-time. It's thrilling. Uh, I usually have two things going at once. Um, having finished the book, The Reasons to Sing, uh, I sometimes only have one thing going, which is is also wonderful. Uh, but uh, I do have two shows in the works, and I have found this to be an incredibly productive time. Uh, I love the setting. I have this... Uh, 
huge picture window in my office. Uh, it looks very much like, if you can recall, of course you can recall, you guys have been where I've been. Um, in Holiday Inn, the, the windows of the inn, when, uh, when Linda Mason first comes to sing uh, for him for an audition, for Bing Crosby for an audition, and there's snow outside, and there are these beautiful inn windows facing out. That's what I my my oh. windows like my office. Do you do you feel like by leaving New York City, the, the area of New York City, that there's a little less stress, less pressure to produce at all? Do you feel freer to write? I mean, I might be getting a little esoteric here. I don't want to impose, but do you feel freer now? It's not esoteric, um, but there are so many different reasons. I mean, not I, I, I've, I love teaching, but running the business of teaching was time consuming. And so it took a lot of time away from my teaching, the, from my writing. The, the teaching itself, I was teaching 16 hours a week, and the teaching itself was a joy, and it actually fed my writing. Uh, while I didn't tend to write a lot on those two days when I was teaching eight hours on two days of the week, uh, I found it. I found it really helpful to my writing. In fact, the two professions have been circular in, uh, as you mentioned in, in the book, the reason to sing, which is about acting there. There is so much about writing and how writing and acting are alike or being a writer and being an actor are alike um, in that we, as, a, as, as writers <laughs> put ourselves in the character's position mm. and we try to give voice to what the, what the character is feeling. And in essence, that's exactly what the, the actor is doing, but the material has been written already. So it's a different craft, but it's a very similar place that the actor needs to start from. So I actually found the two professions to be, um, to actually feed each other. However, I do find that um, being in a setting uh, where there's less sound and less visual imagery, I'm able to see the imagery in my head even better. Mm. I have a, a, a clearer idea of what I'm what I'm what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Uh, I'm doing it just to do it, yeah. uh, which is a wonderful feeling, uh, and it, it yields better work. So. I'm in a great place in my life. I, frankly, I have been since I got together with Lisa. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And Craig, you're you're one of our guests that had a, a pretty lucky situation, I would say, which is, you know, you got to grow up in New York and you were attending theater at a pretty early age. Is that correct? It was very lucky to grow up near New York. It, it, it's odd. Having, having been a teacher to thousands of actors, I see how each person, wherever they grew up, found it they found theater and they found it in in one song on, a, on an album or they found it in seeing a, a tour or or in seeing a, a, a high school production of the wizard of oz they find it uh and then they 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 research it on their own without calling it research yeah. uh being near new york of course it was uh was lucky very lucky. And I was very close to New York, uh, about a half an hour away. Do you remember the first show you saw? Yeah. Uh, first show I saw was with my brother and, uh, it was no strings late in the run. Richard Rogers wrote his own lyrics and, uh, I remember who was in it. Uh, Howard Keel and Barbara McNair had replaced 
Diane Carroll and Richard Kiley. Oh, wow. And it was thrilling. I was, I was, I was hooked actually on yeah. seeing that show. Were you listening to other music besides the musical theater compositions? You know, I talked before about, about the, about all of us when we become interested in theater and we start seeking out more of it and going to more of it and noticing that something someone does in a film or on television actually is theater. Mm -hmm. um, is And all of that is research. Yes, I noticed all sorts of music, uh, everything. I didn't know I was taking it in in a way that it was going to be part of what I do. but. A couple of things happened in the three things converged for me uh, in the middle of the 60s. One, the Beatles made uh, rock grow up and and that was thrilling. Uh, I didn't know that's what was happening, but just the combination of the 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 melodic uh, sophistication of what they were doing. Uh, the harmonic sophistication of what they were doing, and that the lyrics very soon thereafter, very soon after their arrival, started growing up. Yeah. I was, I was very, um, I would say, influenced by the Beatles, um, and then other good rock that happened at the time, and folk. I loved folk. I was in a. Folk you were in a folk group, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was in a folk. I was in several folk groups. I was in a group called the Travelers Five, and we went nowhere. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't travel. Anyway, I mean, we didn't go out of town. We didn't go to the to Belrose, okay. um, but we were the Travelers Five, and um, it was great. I was talking about the three things converging, and what they were was discovering theater and the Beatles, and starting to write all at the same time, all in the same year, practically. Uh, so I say those three occurrences. Uh, were the beginning of, of, of my writing. And were your parents supportive of you going into an artistic lifestyle? I would say that, that my parents were extremely instrumental in my being an artist, but not by supporting it. Mm. Um, they didn't not support it. My father was, um, was clinically depressed and didn't know it. So he, he, was a distant figure, even though he lived in the house. Um, he had qualities that were extraordinary. He was a, a perfectionist, uh, uh, which I am too. Uh, and he had a great work ethic. Uh, but he wished he had been a carpenter, and he was great at it. But he was an accountant. And that was instrumental in my choosing a profession that I would love. Now, he didn't say to me, Craig, <laughs> I hate working as an accountant. I wanted to be a carpenter. You be sure to do what you want to do. He didn't do that at all. In fact, I would say he probably sent the message that the definition of work is going somewhere you don't want to go and doing something you don't want to do to make money. That is the definition of work. And I, I just never bought it. Never. When I was four years old, I didn't buy it. My mother, on the other hand, I would say my mother probably enjoyed whatever offshoot, whatever, whatever light or 
glory might have been thrown off the fact that I, I sang a little and wrote songs that might've felt good to her, made her feel good about herself. But the combination of the two parents made me grow up feeling that no one in the house knew who I was. Mm. And while that may seem, oh, gee, poor little Craig, it actually forced me to know who I was and to exercise that in private without even knowing that's what I was doing. That's what starting to write was about. Uh, that I wanted to express who I was. I wanted to be to be heard and known. I don't mean known famous. I mean known for who I am. This is what I am. This is what I think. There's a song I wrote for working uh, called The Mason that uh, actually expresses that. It's about the stone mason. Um, I'm going to tell you the lyric. It's very simple. Uh, he builds a house with his hands. 30 years go by. It stands. It stands where nothing stood, a house of stone. The mason sleeps real good. He does his work. His workday flies. Quitting time's a big surprise. And then it's one more stone to get just right. It's always one more stone before the night. Every house he builds, every stone he lays, it's not just making money and counting off the days. He builds a house with his hands. A hundred years go by. It stands. It tells you who he was. A life goes fast. But the work a mason does, it's made to last. The work a mason does, it's made to last. It's, I wrote that when I was 28. And I was very much writing about the character in Stud Circle's book. But I was writing about how I feel about work. Yeah. And it, 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 it was written in 1978. And that's a good deal more than 40 years ago. So the song is already older than the house was in uh, in the first verse and it's a really good song it really is and sometimes i think that's all there is yeah you know did your dad get to ever hear the song yeah they saw the show and uh he 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 actually loved it yeah he loved it love that i'm glad to hear that and you know when colleges time comes up um you chose hofstra correct i did choose hofstra for a um a very simple and practical reason it would keep me near new york <laughs> it's a great answer great that's answer. it now what i didn't know is they had a great theater department and i learned so much in the brief time i was there i was only there for a year and a half i quit to do a show but um i <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Yeah, we have, we have to talk about why, but yeah. <laughs> well, well, I didn't quit because I didn't like it. I quit because uh, I got my first professional job. So, but I loved it. I loved Hofstra and I loved the theater department. I did a lot of really fun things there. Uh, fun's the wrong word. I did a, some really exciting plays and musicals there. And I, I loved working there. And I taught, I, was, I learned so much as an actor. Uh, I'm very grateful to Hofstra. I loved it. And so, and then what did, what was the reason why you, you got your first, pro- what was that professional job that you got? Uh, it, it was playing the boy in the Fantastics off Broadway uh, in the 10th year of its original run. And um, I had auditioned for the show a year before. In fact, I was so naive. I saw the show when I was, I think, a senior in high school. And I called the the box office number. There used to be numbers where you could actually talk to the person in the box office. Mm-hmm. And I called and said, is there anybody I could talk to 
who runs the show backstage and he gave me to the stage manager. And I said, how, I, I love your show. How can I be in it? And he said, well, you need to get an eight by 10 a photo and a resume. You can imagine what my resume looked like as a senior <laughs> in high school. Uh, and it was on that, that um, you, you guys are, are, are young. You probably don't recall. Uh, do you remember the, the, the blue mimeograph in high yeah. school? Yeah, yes, it was on. It those, was, yeah. That's what my resume was printed on. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know the kind when they hand it out, everybody smells it because it's got some oh, kind yeah. of intoxicating mm-hmm. smell. <laughs> you think you're gonna? Yes. Yeah. No. It's like it's sniffing markers or something. Yes. Yep. Um, everybody, <laughs> the, the papers would go out and everybody just holds their faces, just see if they could possibly have some fun. But but um, that's my resume, and uh, you know the shows I had been in in high school. And they called me when I was a freshman in, in college. I went in, auditioned, didn't get called back. And then when they called me when I was a sophomore, I went in and got the show. Um, and uh, I was 19, which the boy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I replaced a 30-year-old. And, um, and you know, when, when he was done with, it, with, with his time there, he, to, people moved on a lot because we didn't get paid much off Broadway right. at the time. Uh, you probably don't know how much you got paid in 1969 off Broadway. I'd be how curious. Much, how much did yeah, you get paid? And you're at that small theater, that, you know, and the group. Seventy-two dollars and thirty cents, and the take home was fifty-six. I know it's shocking, isn't it? Huh. I mean, my daughter makes that babysitting in one night. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Easily. Easily, yeah. Depending on how many hours. My so if goodness. you if you prorate even at the pre-tax. Uh, $72, you're making less than $10 a show, which is That's uh, just crazy. It's shocking. No wonder uh, why it stayed open for so long. <laughs> well, it's it stayed open for so long because it was a small theater, because it was run well, and because it was something people wanted to go back to again and again. I probably saw it four or five times before I was in it. Mm. And uh, it was a dream come true. It was actually the part I was, I was wanting to play more than any other. And uh, it was it was thrilling being in it. Uh, made a lot of friends. Had a great time. Craig, what is so intoxicating about the Fantastics? I think it's that thing that we often hear theater artists talk about. That there's a kind of make believe in it. That there's nothing on the stage really, and that everything we we are we are pulled into or imagine is done. In the simplest way, whether it's a sheet uh, or a, 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 a somebody dropping snow or dropping rain or colored papers being thrown up in the air or simple worn out props, the, the, it's, it's, there's something so beautiful in theater. I, I, I heard um, Doug Wright, the great playwright and friend of mine, um, speak at a conference once, and he said what he loves about theater is that someone can come out, uh, first person on stage, and and say, we're in Russia, it's 1932, and put a stake in the ground, and it says Russia, 1932, and you, the audience, go. You just go. And it's, I'm, I'm not, it's not that I'm not a fan of all the brilliant technological stuff we see um, on Broadway now. I mean, it's just amazing what people are able to do and the amount of money people are, are spending on productions. But I think that the, the bare bones quality of the Fantastics 
enlists the audience as such a partner in the telling of the story. Plus, it is it's a classic story. You know, I, I, I don't know that I believe in that 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 idea that there are only five stories and everything is one of them. Um, you've heard of that. It, uh, uh, one is Faust, one is Romeo and Juliet. And there are a couple of others that that everything follows one of those plots. Oh. Well, clearly it's Romeo and Juliet, but it's got a twist on it, of course, because the fathers actually want them to get to get together. But I think I think that that classic nature of the story also helps. Plus, Tom and Harvey did brilliant, brilliant work. How do you begin your process when you are starting to write a song for a production or for a character? Well, to quote the title of my book, uh, I begin with the reasons for saying. Mm-hmm. So the character has something they want to accomplish, and then they, or something they feel, um, and they want to, they need to say, or that, or that they, they would wish they wouldn't say, but they are drawn to saying it. Uh, whatever the reason to sing is, that's the thing that comes first. Then it could be a piece of music or a, a piece of lyric. Uh, music is fast. Lyrics are slow. Everybody who's ever done the thing I do will tell you that. Um, so it's very, most commonly, I will have some lyric. And at the same time, I'll be hearing music in my head. I'd say you start with the idea. You start with the reason. Not even the idea, the reason. Um, it's why I think the lyricist is the, uh, it's the person who makes the show sing because it's the person who determines how the character will express what they feel in the situation they're in. Since you're working chronologically uh, through my, my career, um, you'll get to Marvin Hamlish, but I learned a lot from Marvin the way he worked, he always wanted to work music first. And Marvin did something that that um, good composers, real composers will always tell you uh, you should do. And that is you hear it in your head before you play it. It doesn't mean you hear it fully formed in your head, but Marvin would always sit there with, he'd have a verse uh, of lyric or he'd have a line or a title. And he'd sit there silently for a very short time because Marvin was incredibly quick and I was always in the room and there was a tape recorder running, uh, not a recording device on a phone, but a tape recorder. And, uh, and he'd start to go, he'd start to play, but he always heard it in his head first or heard the beginning of it in his head. And when you're writing lyrics and you don't have music yet, you will hear cadences and ultimately those cadences will start to have pitches uh, so you, you've done half the composing and you haven't even put your hands on the piano. Uh, and then you go to the piano and you figure out why it did that and where it wants to lead and how it's harmonically uh, fleshed out. Uh, m- much of the time you've actually heard the, the harmonic underpinnings of the, of the melody, but sometimes you haven't. And it's actually great fun to play with the different ways uh, that Melanie could be harmonized. And uh, we can actually stick with Mr. Hamlish for a little bit. Uh, what made you decide to just write lyrics for this after you had been writing songs on your own for such a long time? Well, I didn't decide. Um, I heard that Live Ant, uh, which is a, a very active company in, in this period, is a Canadian company uh, that that actually uh, spawned uh, ragtime, 
mm-hmm. and uh, Susico and uh, Hal Prince's production of Showboat um, and uh, Kiss and Spider Woman. Kiss and Spider, yep. Um, uh, and uh, Fosse, I think, was there. Yes, it was. And Sweet Smell Success. My dear friend Peter Friedman, uh, who's a great, oh. great actor, uh, was up in Canada uh, at the live events uh, rehearsal space, and he was rehearsing Ragtime. And he knew I loved Sweet Smell Success, and he just heard that day that that live event was doing that and that they didn't have a lyricist because they had Marvin. And um, he called me all excited and said, you gotta, you gotta try to get this. So I, I knew Marty Bell. Marty Bell was second in command to Garth Drabinsky, and um, Marty's very, very bright and has great taste. And luckily, he knew my work because uh, he, he made it his business to know who was there, who was out there, and who was good, uh, even if you weren't famous. Mm-hmm. And um, I called Marty and I said, I want a shot at this. I want to, if you audition me, I think you'll hire me. And uh, over the next six months, I did that maybe three times. And ultimately he did. Um, And he gave me Marvin's number, said Marvin's waiting to hear from you. I had never met Marvin. And um, we got together and wrote four songs and they gave us the job. Do you remember the first song you, you wrote with him for Sweet Smell of Success for your, for your, test out period you're absolutely we wrote a um an opening number that actually is not unlike the opening number that was in the uh, um in the in the broadway production the song was called rumor and uh it had much the same music that's there and uh so instead of gotta get in the column it was someone started a rumor mm. um and we wrote an early version of that uh, for our audition. Ended up changing a lot. And then, of course, it changed its nature uh, between Chicago and uh, New York. Um, and I, I remember every song I ever wrote with Marvin, including the ones we cut. And at this time, was a book writer working oh, on yes. the show? Okay. John, John Guare, our wonderful book writer, was on the show a year before us. And um, they had, uh, they, they had, uh, John had done a, a very fat uh, first uh, draft of a script that Marvin and I were given to write our songs from. Mm. Uh, it was very different from what, from what it became. When you get something like that, does it say, uh, you know, insert song here, opening number here, or do, do you and Marvin go and go, oh, this looks like something that th- could be a song? Well, Marvin, John did not do that. And to his credit, uh, it, it is, again, very, very limiting when the book writer does that. You kind of have to overlook it. There's a there's a thing in in uh, a lot of actors won't read stage directions because yeah. they don't want to know what the writer thinks the person should be feeling, for instance. Uh, you know, you don't want to see a character heading, you know, Teddy, and then the word tentatively, and then the line. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and in essence, that's what it's like when a book writer puts in song ideas, because mm-hmm. knowing when to sing and how to sing and what to sing about is really the province of, I think, first the lyricist and then the composer. Mm-hmm. Marvin and I arrived at those things always jointly. And then he would uh, trust me to go off and find how, what slant to come at the song from. And then I'd bring titles lines 
verses uh, to him. And now, if it's okay, we're going to jump back, if that's all right. How did working come into your life? Working was, was everything about it was wonderful. I, 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 I love what we did to this day. Uh, uh, the, the project was initiated by Stephen Schwartz, who I had never met, although Stephen and I grew up 45 minutes from each other on Long Island. At the same time, uh, he's uh, a year older than I am. So we were we were public high school kids on Long Island at exactly the same moment, hearing exactly the same stuff and being drawn to both theater and pop. Um, I hadn't met Stephen, but I I was I was doing a a um, a cabaret show of my songs and uh, somebody I had not really known at college but who had been there at the same time, not in the theater department, was Craig Zayden. You know the name because he was the first Sondheim biographer. Yeah. Uh, he wrote Sondheim and Company, and then he wrote the, the updated version of it. And uh, Craig and I went to college at the same time, though we didn't know each other. And he came to see this evening of my songs. He was dear friends with Stephen. And uh, he brought Steve to see me uh, because he knew Steve was looking for for uh, one more composer for his uh, for his show, working he had he had uh, been working with Mickey Grant and James Taylor, and um, I think he had talked to Mary Rogers, who had then brought on Susan Birkenhead as a lyricist. But he wanted one more one more writer, um, and he came to see it. And that night, he asked me to read the book and uh, talk to him the next week, and um, I did. And he asked me to uh, write a song for the retired man, uh, which was a, a chapter in the book. And I did. And I played it from about halfway through the writing process. The process was very long. It's a long song and a difficult one. Um, but I played it for him about halfway, and he, he just loved what I was doing. And I think I got the job then. And it came about... <laughs> You know, people always ask, uh, young writers always ask, how do you get started? And, and really, you get started by having your work heard. Um, nothing good can happen until it is. Uh, it's a secret until then. So um, have your stuff heard. And there were, there were key moments in my career when, when that's, how, uh, that's how things were generated. It's also how I got Sweet Smell Success. It's how Marty Bell knew my work. Um, he had known my work from hearing an evening of songs I did much later. Uh, it was in 1990. Um, so that's how that happened. And, and in both cases, it, it began by, by the songs being, being visible or audible. Um, and they can't, it, it, you know, so many times a, a writer will have their songs sung by a singer and you may love the performance or you may not even like the performance. I'm, I'm always astounded that I'll hear a performance and it, 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 I, I, I'll think, oh, gee, I wish, wish that wasn't the way it was. And I'll end up, something good will happen because they heard that performance. And I, I think sometimes we, we can't measure the, the, the effect that a performance will have when all we're hearing is the things that aren't there. You know, oh, why, why wasn't that rest there? Nobody gives a shit about your rest. <laughs> you know, did, did the song move them or not? Right. Uh, did they believe and, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 
Um, that's how working happened. It was a great, great experience. We had an out-of-town tryout in Chicago at the, the Goodman Theater. And um, it was good uh, and well-received. And we wanted to make it better, so we did. A um, bunch of songs were cut. I had one cut, and uh, James had one cut, and uh, Susan and Mary and Steve had a song cut. And um, I wrote two new songs between Chicago and Broadway. Uh, they were house, Just a Housewife and The Mason. Um, the Mason came about in a beautiful way. Uh, Stephen asked me to replace a James Taylor song. Uh, and the job was it needed to be the person had to like their work because uh, we needed a positive statement early about someone in their work. Uh, so it wasn't seeming to be people complaining about their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needed to use uh, on stage guitars, meaning actors playing guitars. Um, that's I went looking in the chapters uh, in the book for a, a chapter that seemed to say that that interested me. Also, there was an actor in the play that I in the show that I just loved, and uh, he didn't have a song. Uh, he had pieces of songs, but David Patrick Kelly and uh, was in the show, and I I just loved him, and I loved his voice. It was so grainy and real, and uh, just a beautiful guy, uh, young young wonderful soulful singer uh sounded like a person you know he didn't sound like a singer and um so i wrote that song for him uh and it was, it was thrilling I, it, housewife was also also worked out well um i remember i i was i was in new york working and the show was running in chicago and steve asked me to come out and play him what i was doing on the housewife song i was getting about halfway done i went out and played uh, I was in the rehearsal room uh, during lunch. Everybody was out, and I played about half of Housewife for Stephen. And uh, he said, "Oh, you did it again!" So it felt really good. Craig, I'd love to ask you. Just a Housewife is probably one of the best musical th- songs ever written. A lot of people will be doing it even long before we have all left this earth. Uh, what advice and tips do you have to a singer that's going to? present that song to an audience the idea of the song is that there's a a question that she's been asked what work do you do what what do you do and she being a housewife is in the position of having to say i don't have a job and it comes out as i don't work well, I work, but she doesn't know how she feels about her work when she begins the song. And the reason she doesn't know is that she's gotten used to saying, what I do doesn't matter. You know, I don't really work. Because if she doesn't say it, she knows you're thinking it. Hmm. So that's where the song begins. It moves. She then, in the second verse, simply lists the tasks that she does that make up the job. And in the third verse, the language changes. So instead of all I'm is just a housewife, nothing special, nothing great, it's all I am is just a housewife 
what I feel is out of fashion, out of date. And those are, and she doesn't know it yet, but those, those words, out of fashion, out of date, those are the beginning of her understanding that other people think that. She gets pissed in that verse and says at the end of the verse, all I am is just a housewife right away. I'm not too bright. So the TV talk shows tell me every night. Hmm. So she's kind of gotten angry. And then she tries to apologize. I don't mean to complain and all, but they make you feel like you're two feet tall and you're just a wife. She tries to apologize, but can't. So she starts explaining how bad it feels to be, to be looked down upon or not appreciated or not have people understand that this is a job. And then, and then in her last verse, what I do, what I choose to do, may be dumb to you, but it's not to me. She actually is standing up for it. Um, and I mean, did you ever think, really stop and think what a job it was doing all the things that a housewife does? She defends it, more than defends it, she speaks uh, with pride about it. And then, having made a fuss again, as she did when she got angry, she then withdraws somewhat for a tag of the song and goes sort of back to where she began, but it's different somehow because she's different. So what I would tell the actor is don't act the feelings, uh, act the action. And the action is to tell us what you do for a living and to not know what you think about that and to find out that's what you should do. So the overall objective for her, is to educate the questioner who has ever asked this question, she's answering it. And then underneath it, it's like you were saying, it's the point of views that are going to change yeah. as the song goes on. Um, I, I don't yeah. think she's, I don't think she's out to educate. I think she's out to stay alive while an unwanted spotlight is on her. Ah, okay. She doesn't want to be in that spotlight. Hey, you tell us about your work. What you want to talk to me? Why do you want to talk to me? Can you turn off that light? No, we're not going to turn off the light. What do you do? I don't do anything. Oh yeah. Well, I do something, but so, so she's not out to prove something. She's simply got a spotlight on her and is answering the question. Hello there. This is Eva Gabor and Eddie Albert. Yes, before we were on Green Acres, we were both Broadway babies, and we love listening to Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. And don't forget to tell them to put pasties on, and a pastry, uh, no, don't put pasties, go to patreon.com and set a donation. Yes, patreon.com, oh, do it for me, not for Jaja. Welcome to the theater, darling. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let's talk about the role of mentorship, if we can. 
Um, A a student comes to you and they want to be mentored by you. What makes you take on the role of a mentor as it is such an important role in the arts? I never do freelance mentoring. Um, any any mentoring I've ever done has been under the auspices of a university or a um, uh, or some kind of a program. There's a program I teach at every year. Uh, I'm actually the head teacher at a program called the Johnny Mercer Songwriters Project. Yeah, Meet, yeah it meets course. once a year. Meets once a year at Northwestern. What I see about mentoring is I'm, I'm mentoring two students right now, uh, two students within uh, uh, a theater program at Northwestern, uh, mentoring them on Zoom. And what I feel, and I actually learned this through doing uh, some mentoring through the Dramatists Guild, um, uh, and I've um, done a lot of mentoring at, uh, at ASCAP um, and, and, and other things as well. And what I came to, what I came into it believing is that no one should teach writing to anyone. And uh, I still believe it. So when I mentor, I have a really light touch. I'm, I'm more interested in the writer actually becoming what they were trying to become. Uh, there's a, there's a, a great temptation in mentoring. I see it everywhere I teach with other people to, to fall into saying without the line, this is what I would have done. Yep. And it's irrelevant. It, 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 it has nothing to do with teaching. It is simply you becoming uh, an uninvited collaborator uh, and, and clouding. You're actually closing the door for the student by saying that, even if they don't take the idea, um, because you're, you're, it's, it's, it's like writing a review of it while they're still writing it. So, it's important to me to understand what the writer's trying to do and to help them become themselves because that's what we're all trying to do as artists. We're trying to be the thing we're going to be. And, and we don't need to be told what somebody else would do. You can teach craft, but you can't teach creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, you really can't. Uh, it's something we're, we're, it's something we're born with, and then it's something we cultivate. Um, I mean, when I look at my life, I, I, I was an artist when I was picking worms out of the out of the garden in the in the yeah. back of the house. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. was I, I, I was always an artist. Uh, I was never fit for anything else. Unhirable in the real world. Uh, I there was nothing else I was going to be. So I was always being creative and always being. Uh, on the road to becoming a, a, an artist. Other than the aforementioned Steve Schwartz, were there other mentors that you had along the way? I'm curious if anyone else left a, an impression on you, took you under their wing. Everyone has. Uh, <laughs> I mean, all, all the good people. Uh, everyone. Um, I met Sondheim in 78, and we we had lunch, and which was thrilling. Uh and I told him that he had already mentored me. Um, I have had a lot of um, contact with him over the last couple of decades, and I've played things for him. Uh, before I wrote my book, um, he and I sat and talked about tone uh, because he had been so successful with his books. And um, we, we, he sat and gave me some advice about, about actually, he talked about his own quest for finding a 
finding a tone for the book that was somewhere right in the middle of uh, being colloquial and being professorial. And um, it's the great place to live. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah, it, it is true. I mean, we know things, so we are professorial, but we are also just people having dinner with somebody. Um, so I, before he wrote his book and before I wrote mine, we, we did an interview. I, I interviewed him for the, the, um, the drama skilled magazine. And there was, there was, that interview was so lively. He said it was the best one he'd ever had. And, uh, it was so lively that uh, it actually gave both of us the courage to write our books because we, we looked back on the transcript and he said, I was that good. And <laughs> I said, yeah, you were that good, you know, and, and, and I was good too. And yeah, yeah. we're both really surprised. Uh, so it, it kind of, he had had a question about how to write prose and how to write prose was the way he was speaking to me. He had simply been asked good questions um, and had a good uh, a dialogue with somebody who was also uh, in the trenches. You know, there aren't many of us who do this. Yes. It's, so, yeah. uh, so I've been mentored by him uh, without having been mentored by him. Mm -hmm. what, he wrote in his book, do you mind if I continue with him? Please. He wrote in his book, um, about a moment with Cole Porter where when they were doing Gypsy, Ethel Merman brought, brought him over to play some, play some of the score for, for Cole Porter because Cole was feeling um, down because it was a late stage of his life and he was in such pain with his, right. with his legs. Um, and they played and he recalled that Cole Porter, um, chuckled when they played um uh, uh together wherever we go and uh wherever he goes i i know she goes wherever she goes i know he goes no fits no feuds no fights no egos amigos when he said amigos <laughs> when he sang amigos cole porter chuckled and he said it might be the best moment in this whole career best compliment ever <laughs> i i had a moment with steve where um uh, sometime where i was playing him i played him uh, two songs from poster boy and we were in his uh, in his study in his townhouse and um there was a phrase he just loved in a song called door number three um there was a phrase he loved it was it was uh it was on a it was a lot of notes on one word and um he said play that play that play that and he came off the piano bench we were sitting at the piano bench and the phrase is circular meaning you can keep playing it over and over we were sitting there singing this phrase together um and i, I that was my cold porter moment yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's what we work for it really That's is why we do it yeah the, the best person there's ever been doing what i do and he likes a phrase i wrote and it's not even words it's music <laughs> which is astounding to me you know yeah absolutely you know i think we would be remiss if we did not ask you about uh a show that everybody loves and that did not have the longest life on Broadway. And that, that is, is their life after high school, mm -hmm. um, which is done all the time now, uh, yeah, just about everywhere. And yeah. I think there was, there was a reading of it, maybe at roundabout a few 
God, how do you know these things? It's oh, Bob. He's so good. He's so good. He's, you have to keep Rob. tabs on things. Did and Lonnie directed it? No. Yes, that's exactly okay. right. Okay. So John Weidman and I uh, had always wanted to work together. So our first experiment together was writing a new version of of his The Life After High School, <clears throat> which we did. And I wrote half a dozen new songs. And John wrote an entirely new book. And we, the two of us, decided this isn't exciting enough to continue with. So we we let it go after one workshop. But yes, we did do a workshop with Lonnie Price. And um, it was great fun working with John. I, I really liked what we wrote. And it seemed it seemed more of its day than um, than it was of of the day we're in. And um, so we just decided that what we wanted was to work together, but but to let that one go. Um, Yes, we did. We did that. But how, what was the experience like originally? Yes. It was good for a couple of years. Um, in case any of you don't know who are listening, it takes a long time for musicals to happen. Um, so when I talk about years, that's not unusual. Things take forever. Uh, back in the day of high school, which is in the 80s, um, it took probably three, four, five years to get a show on if it was ever going to get on. Now it's closer to 10 uh for no good reason other than money uh but it 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 takes a while but back in the day uh jeff kindley who wrote the book and i had a wonderful time collaborating we made a couple of fatal mistakes and we made one on the first day of our collaboration and we we and and it's what john and i john weidman and i were trying to cure uh the fatal mistake we first fatal mistake we made was to um to have there not be continuing characters. Uh, we, we auditioned it for Mike Nichols uh, to direct, and, and um, he, he loved the score, and he, uh, he said he wouldn't do it uh, because it didn't have a story. And he said that he was always attracted to things that don't have stories. But he said the, the most interesting thing, he said when you don't give the audience a story, they make one up, and the one they make up won't go with what you've written. And it's brilliant. And it is what happens. It is what happens. Um, so we we did make that mistake. And then we made two more. Uh, we did the show at the Hartford Stage Company with uh, our original director. He, we did the show at Hartford Stage Company and had a wonderful spirit and a, and a, and a, and a, and a real looseness and a casualness about it, which, which the audience really went with it was very successful in Hartford both critically and with the audience and then we did the show on Broadway at the Barrymore and Barrymore has a formality about it very high ceiling just a gorgeous gorgeous theater um and it's just a classic Broadway theater and the show didn't belong there belonged off Broadway that's the second fatal mistake the third fatal mistake was the director he was in over his head he got fired by the time he got fired we were in extended previews and uh, it was it was too late to to make what was on the stage uh, be as good as um, some of the book and some of the songs are uh, but the, the show is done all the time it was funny before we went on the air Kevin was uh, sharing a story about your class Kevin would you would you tell Craig what you told me before well, we went on you know I was you know I was an I was you know done some shows and I was I was an actor through the aughts and and I started came to New York in 2002 and I said to Rob I was like oh my god Craig's class 
was like the most famous class in New York City. If you were an equity actor, you were working on Broadway, you were doing your work, your class. But it was also notoriously a scary class because it was such intense work. I mean, it was such good work. I'm sure you would use different language than I would use as the, as the, as the actor who hears from other people what they went through. But, you know, you, you, I, you could venture to guess, say that you educated a whole new level of actors, you know, of this the, the, of caliber of actors. But you, you set a bar for a lot of people to, to meet when it came to realism, being truthful, honoring the lyric, the same work that you put into your songs, you now were able to draw out of people. But I think actors knew that this was, if you wanted to be an actor on Broadway, you, you had to do top tier work. You had to really put yourself into this. Uh, and and I, I would love you to talk a little bit about your, the teaching years and, um, and how that came about. There's a difference between performing and acting. And performing is about half of what we see in musicals. And it's good. It's high grade what we see in most musicals. But performing is putting forward attitudes and postures that suggest what the person is feeling while they're singing. Instead of the person feeling something while they're singing. And that coloring the performance naturally what i just described is acting the second thing it is what people do in place when they're good all i've done is taken what is done in place and demand of acting songs to be that rich and that real and i found over the decades of teaching that that can be applied to any song it doesn't have to be a theater song it can be any song. Um, it can even be a song that that doesn't have, say, an action. You can find one in it. But you, you cannot sing a song without an action, without having an action, and have it, have it be acting. It isn't acting. It's performing. And it takes many, many, many forms. Um, mostly, it's, it, it is one kind of pretending or another. And it could be on such a high level that it has a look of realism to it, but it isn't. And what the audience will sense is that lack of viscera in the, in the performance so that their own viscera will not be engaged. They will be delighted. Their ear will be engaged. They will be impressed. They might even be uh, able, they will be able to follow the pattern of what you're doing, meaning uh, in one place I am hopeful, in another place I am I am angry, in another place I am in love. Mm -hmm. They might they will be able to follow what you mean, but it'll have a, um, a Crayola box of eight uh, uh, quality of of being primary colors and not having the subtlety that that the three of us are having right here, uh, simply because we are in the position right here of having to make up what we're doing. Ultimately, what you need to be doing when you're singing a song is you need to be making it up. You need to be the inventor. The character that you're playing is the inventor, or that's the conceit. That is the idea. I'm making this song up. If, 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 if the character of Joey in, 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 in Most Happy Fella is singing that great, great song, and he's actually living um, that that he that he relates to the scent of crops from a hundred miles away, 
and it calls to him and he's had everything he wants here and he's getting comfortable and maybe he's gained 10 pounds and he's ready to go. We've all been there. Mm-hmm. We've all been to that place. We haven't been there in that we're, we're smelling the crops from 100 miles away, but we have certainly come to the conclusion, oh, I am so comfortable here that I'm ceasing to be me. Mm-hmm. I am, I'm actually like a chair. Um, by finding how you relate to that, um, you can uh, you can sing that song with a with a with a life and a vitality and an originality, rather than what I will see say in that song is I will see someone playing handsome man. So here I am. I'm already a handsome man, and I'm playing handsome man. So it's it's I'm bald and I'm intense. And if I pretended right now to be bald and intense, what a waste of fucking time that would That'd be. be overkill. Yeah. yeah. Well, it wouldn't be overkill. It actually would be diminishing because we'd cancel it out because I'd be busy not being a oh, baldness happens. It's there. You know, you'd see it. But the intensity wouldn't be real because I'd be pretending to be intense. Right. So you'll see it a lot in musical theater. Someone funny will be pretending to be funny, but they're funny. Someone who's sexy will be pretending to be sexy, but they're sexy. So my point is reality is reality. Even when it's heightened, it does not to be, it not need to be paint by numbers to be repeatable. Uh, you can repeat it. You can repeat that good performance by repeating your process. And uh, it's simply the difference between acting and performing. And there's, there's nothing wrong with performing. It's, not as engaging to the actor and it's not as engaging to the audience. Craig, let's imagine that the dramatist guild comes to you and says, we're working on a a project and the project is, is we're asking every single songwriter to take only one song from their collection and put it in a, a box. And so a hundred years from now, when someone opens the box, they go, ah, that's what this person was. What song of yours, only one, would you put in the box that you feel either best represents you or is the work that you are proudest of and want to be most remembered for? I wouldn't imagine any writer likes this question. Not at all. (laughs) But we ask it all the time. And I tell you, I don't like your question. (laughs) Given that, and given that you've actually cornered me, I would say what you'd call a dream. And there's Mm -hmm. 90 million other ones that are just as brilliant. (laughs) Actually, it's not true, um, but there are a dozen that are that are as good. What do you love about that song so much? I love what it doesn't say. That the song can be about a dream that happened, a dream come true, or it can be about something that didn't happen. Happen, and and the that's not even noticeable to the listener. It's for the actor. So the song is colored by which of those two things the actor is singing about. And then on top of that, the actor can be singing about baseball or they can be singing about something else. Mm -hmm. It's also got a really beautiful, um, beautiful melody. Um, I love the song harmonically and melodically. I just think it's lovely. Um, It also, it does something. Good music actually 
it, it, it reaches inside you and, and does something to you. Um, it always has. And uh, I think that song has that. Um, I first, I wrote the song in 84 and I first sang it in public in 1990 as the first song of a, of an evening of my songs I was doing in the village. Um, and I didn't know what it was about. I thought it was about baseball. And um, I found out when I started singing it in front of people, I mean, I, uh, singing the first line, first couple of lines, I found out that it was actually about something that had occurred that was disappointing. And there was a, a, a deep current of, of, of longing in the song, and it came from that. And I didn't know it until I was in front of people. It was quite horrifying, actually, to find that. Um, I remember I had to take a couple of very deep breaths to be able to do what I was doing. Are you allowed to, to tell us a little bit about what future projects are coming your way, or do you like to keep that close to the vest as you work on it? One of them will be semi-close to the vest, and the other one uh, is out there because it's actually had a production already. I have a show called Poster Boy that mm -hmm. premiered at Williamstown Theater Festival a couple of summers ago, and it has been under option uh, as public theater since then. Oh. And, and Oscar uses the... Um, the uh, artistic director of the public is directing the show and it's, 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 it's a beautiful, beautiful show. It's um, the book was written by Joe trace and uh, the story is it's a true story of Tyler Clementi, who was a college freshman at Rutgers 10 years ago. And I'm sure you all know it was the beginning of the, uh, it gets better, uh, uh, campaign. Tyler was three weeks into his freshman year and his roommate spied on him having a date with another man. And he jumped off the George Washington bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, my, my collaborator and I have done uh, extensive research uh, about Tyler and about what happened. And we've used his own words, even in songs and uh, the roommate's own words in songs. These are from court transcripts. Being in the age of the computer, we everything these boys said to each other ever, and it usually was online, is is a part of a court record. And so we have all this all this information. Plus, they have conversations of them talking to their friends, mm -hmm. and so many things that were were in this four four hundred page court document. Plus, a lot that has been written about Tyler. Anyhow, we began the show, and a year after Tyler died, and then uh, a couple of years later, we started doing workshops, and Mandy Greenfield from Williamstown uh, saw a workshop and decided to do the show. Oscar Eustace saw a workshop up at um, Williamstown the year before we did the production, and he said he had to do it. Anyhow, it's a thrilling project. I'm very excited about it, and uh, Oscar is planning when the... Uh, public revs up again next fall to do the show uh, a, a year from next fall. And uh, we're very excited about it. And Danny Mefford is involved, a great choreographer of uh, Evan Hansen and Fun Home. And um, it, it's just a, it's a great team. And we, uh, we love the show and we've worked with a number of, of just wonderful actors along the way. 
and uh, hopefully we'll get to uh, continue with them. Um, so that's what we, uh, that's, that's, that's the show I can wholeheartedly or rather openly talk about. The other one, I have a, a new show. It's about two thirds done. And uh, John Weidman and I have been writing an original musical since uh, it's about two years ago. And we've each had other projects we've had to do. I had a lot of other, uh, I had a lot of deadlines on the book. And uh, there were times when I was doing workshops on Poster Boy with, with Oscar and Joe. And uh, John was very busy with a number of things. He has a show in the works um, based on the film Norma Ray. Mm. And he's been workshopping that throughout. Um, he, the, the songs are by Roseanne Cash and her, uh, and her partner. And uh, John's doing the book, of course. But um, he's, he's been busy with that. And he's, he's also doing something with, um, um, with Andy Blankenbuehler, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the choreographer from uh, Hamilton. Hamilton yeah. And um, so he's been busy and I've been busy. But after about two years, we're about two thirds of the way through. It's really exciting. Uh, it, it, like Poster Boy, is about something serious. And um, while being... I think entertaining and life affirming. Uh, but, but uh, those two shows have kept me busy over the last couple of years. Plus writing this book, I have a, a list of things I want to do after I finish this show. Um, there's a three character play. I started, which I, I probably will go back to. There's another book I'm interested in writing. And I have a, I have probably three or four musical uh, show ideas that uh, I would like to get to, and um, I probably won't. I probably won't have the time, which is uh, just fine. But I, I, you know, but I have things I want to do, and I'm, I'm finding that I'm more fertile than ever, and really enjoying the writing. Why do you think? It seems like you sometimes do gravitate towards more serious subject matter. Why do you think that is? I am only interested in writing those things that fascinate me. Mm. So. I, I wouldn't be drawn to, I wouldn't be drawn to something fluffy. I, it just, it doesn't appeal to me. I, I like to find out what makes people tick and to write about it. It was actually the high school show I was singing about. It was the first song I wrote after the high school show. Mm. And it was actually that, um, that that hadn't been the, the commercial success I'd wished it would be. Yeah, yeah, and I found that out in front of people. It was awful. And didn't even and wonderful, yeah. and wonderful. And it's how we write. Yeah. It's how right, we write exactly. And it's how we act. It it is how we act. We find whether we look for them and and tangibly know that's what we're doing or not. We find analogous things in our own lives that are exactly the same thing, or 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 bring about the same uh, set of, of, of the same chain reaction of feelings in us um, as, as what literally the song is saying. Um, and, and here I am the, the writer of it and didn't even know that's where it came from. And then Craig, the last question that we always ask all of our guests is, you know, what do you know now uh, as a songwriter that maybe you wished you had known 40 years ago, 50 years ago? When I started, I wasn't nearly as good as I became a few years later. Um, 
I auditioned an early show for Hal Prince in 1971. He doesn't remember this, so he didn't remember this. We, we became very, very close friends and uh, actually were working on something when he died. Mm-hmm. But um, I played an early score for him and he told me how talented I was. And then he just ripped me to shreds for not working harder. So I would say work harder, work harder. Don't have three good lines in your song. Have 20 good lines in your song. It all, all the, the way to do it is just work harder. Demand more of yourself. That's, that's something about the work, something about the business. When you're starting out, try to say yes to everything. Don't, don't turn things down. You learn from everything you do. Um, go and do it. Great advice. Thank you, Craig. This has been such an absolute pleasure and joy getting to talk with you today. And so, and, and such a pleasure to talk to you guys. I mean, you, you are so uh, steeped in this, uh, in this world that we're talking about. And uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's wonderful to talk to people who are actually interested in the, uh, um, in the specificity and the, and the, 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 just the, the little, elements of what we do um it's uh it's such an interesting world we live in uh mm-hmm. the theater and um it's it's not just what's on the stage it's uh everything that got the stuff on the stage ain't that the truth L- listeners don't forget you can also buy craig's book the reason to sing a guide to acting while singing it's a fantastic book uh and like i said you know if you run a musical theater program or you're a student of musical theater you need to buy this book it's going to change your life i guarantee that and if you click into our show's info description it'll take you to a link where you can purchase the book it'll be the greatest thing you can buy this year craig thank you so much for joining us and hopefully our paths will cross again when everything is back up and running Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Kevin. Thank Thank you so so much, much. man. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on Ratings and Reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie baddie bad as annie did in that really weird production in boston where annie dreamt that she was being adopted but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it yes and it was batty it was bizarre i was there i was oh god so head on over to itunes and make us feel even more special than we already do Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise.